The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toko Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Kia ora, and thank you for joining me for Season 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. On today's show, I will be speaking with Becky Ord Jennison, a fellow death walker, a fellow podcaster, and the author of a new book called Death and Its Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Beautiful Lessons. But since this might be the first time you've listened to the show, I'd like to briefly share a little of my story and introduce what Death Walker's Guide to Life is all about first. When I was 39, my partner Steve was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 46 and decided against any orthodox medical treatment for a whole lot of complicated reasons. I was, despite being a professional communicator and chatterbox, lost for words. Worse, instead of facing reality and accepting that the many alternative cancer treatments he pursued weren't working, I embraced the doctrine of positivity and learnt the hard way, the really hard way, that hope isn't enough on its own. Following Steve's death, I regretted, with every cell in my body, being in denial about the fact he was dying. But I couldn't live with that regret. It felt like poison. So I determined to learn from my experience and share my story, hoping that it will encourage others to learn how to talk honestly about death before it's too late. I made it my mission to improve my own death literacy and to help others do the same. In 2014, I completed the Natural Death Care Centre's inaugural Death Walker training program in Byron Bay and then brought NDCC founder Zenith Virago to the top of the South Island to conduct the first training here in Aotearoa. So what, you might ask, is a death walker? Well, first and foremost, a death walker is someone who walks the journey towards their own death as courageously, openly, and as best they can. A death walker is also available to walk with someone else on their journey towards death, to walk with those who are supporting someone else who is dying, and to walk with those who are grieving offering guidance and care to inform and empower them. I'd particularly like to acknowledge all my fellow death walkers out there who might be listening today, and over time my plan is to feature every one of them on the show. This work really is a team effort. Since completing the training, I've hosted numerous death cafes and have run Death Literacy 101 workshops, 
which are a blend of death cafe and creative writing workshop. And since I've worked as a freelance journalist since the late 90s and have broadcast experience, the next steps seem to be to start my own radio show and podcast. And voila, Deathwalker's Guide to Life was born. Deathwalker's Guide to Life launched as a seven-episode pilot season at the end of 2021. Seven fascinating and accomplished humans who had something to say about living with the reality of dying joined me on the show. You can find out more about them and listen to those seven episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Each episode in season one and again in season two will follow the same format, which is around a substantial korero, that is an interview or conversation, with someone about their experience of thinking and talking about death. Book ended by two shorter segments, Death in Print, when I introduce a book or article that deals with death and dying in some way, and Death on Screen, review of a film, TV series, or online resource that also explores the, the, the topic. So, as I said before, on today's show, I'll be speaking with Becky Orgenison about her fabulous new book, Death and its Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Beautiful Lessons. But before I do that, it's time for the first bookend death in print. And no surprise, I'm going to be talking about Becky's book. I have a lot of admiration for her. She's a fellow death literacy advocate, and I love how she's adapted her fabulous podcast, The Death Dialogues Project, into a rich, engaging and life and death affirming book. Becky has always been a great communicator about the subject of death. After being immersed in it from a young age and growing into a health professional, having first trained as a nurse and then a counsellor, but she still recognises and wrangles with the reality that we still mostly live in a death-averse culture and that death avoidance is born out of fear. In the book, Becky encourages readers to expose themselves to their fears in order to learn they are still able to breathe and function in death's presence. Just as the Death Dialogues Project is built on the sacred ground of story, so too are these field notes. Interspersing her own story with those of her podcast guests, Becky covers the vast terrain of illness, dying, death and near-death, bereavement and after-death communication. In particular, I appreciated Becky's chapter on anticipatory grief, which helped me reframe my own thinking about what I had previously simply labelled as death anxiety. In this chapter, she reveals how, even with her own life experience, nothing could have prepared her for the death of her beloved brother, shortly followed by the death of her mother. She writes, It took me apart, dismantled me, and now I'm put together differently. Becky experiences the beautiful, horrible messiness swirling inside her. And like I have also learned, Becky knows that trauma, death and grief changes you on a cellular level. You're listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Coming up, I'll be talking with the author herself, Becky Orr-Jennison. Kia ora, Becky, and welcome to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm very delighted you're joining me on today's show. Of course, we're here to talk about your book, Death and Its Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Beautiful Lessons, which was published in February this year. And this book grew out of the Death Dialogues Project, which now consists, I think, of 115 episodes. Is that right? You're up to about that? I think you're right. I think, yeah, have 116 coming up next. Yes. Yeah, cool. But first I'd like to 
for my listeners to go back to a little bit of the beginning of your story. So can you tell us a little bit about the set of circumstances that led to you making the Death Dialogues Project your mission? Yes. So there's quite a history between me and death throughout my work career, work experience, kind of always waving a flag, hoping that it would be honored a bit more in clinical settings that I was working in. My father died in 1983 of a brain aneurysm, and that was my first very intense experience with death, complicated relationship there. So interesting grieving experience. But it was in 2016 when my brother called me complaining about his memory and an ensuing year of almost dementia-like symptoms. It took six months for the doctors to finally be able to get a brain biopsy. And he had primary CNS lymphoma. And he was my best friend. And he was my biggest support. And he's seven years older than me. I have three older brothers, but he's the youngest, seven years older. And so I journeyed with him through that year and went to the United States as much as I could to be with him and was with him at his end time as well. And because of our time in New Zealand, and um, I know that we both have experience with Zenifrago, and I had watched um, Zen and the Art of Dying and had some experience from living in New Zealand, seeing people doing death differently than that was done in the United States. And the Maori, obviously, with the Tangi you know, that's a whole different cultural experience that feels like has opened the door here for people to explore and and give death the identity that their family needs and, and the surrounding time. So that really opened up my vision when I went back for the last time and we were fortunate enough to have a um, funeral director who said, you know what, I know this is coming and I've never done this before, but you can have them home as long as you like. And therein, this journey began at the same time, my 95-year-old mother is living with us in New Zealand and starts her trajectory. Obviously, at 95, you're on your end-of-life trajectory, but very mindfully um, had nine more months after my brother died until she died. And she wanted the same energy and the, you know, she goes back to the old-fashioned ways and she wanted that kind of honoring. So, Here in New Zealand, um, we didn't even involve a funeral home. I mean, we did everything at home and took her directly um, to the the cemetery um, from our home. So it was during this time I start to stage the vagina monologues for our community for a the V-Day. And, and when you do it for that, you're doing it as a fundraiser for like a women's crisis center or rape crisis. So um, it was about six months after my brother Max died that I was going over these papers. And I just felt like, as has happened to me many times, he was very much a mentor, very much a social activist, taught me in every way to be a good human. And I just felt a little whisper saying back, we need to do this with death. You need to get death out of the closet. And I just, it clicked. And it it um, has always been a mission of sorts throughout my, but it was a way to just bring it all together. And so therefore I did, I formed the Death Dialogues Project and later started the podcast after I had a young intern who informed me, you know, 
we're all listening more than we're reading. And it just was good timing because I did I did stage a couple of productions that were very well received on stage here in Fongaray. And but then COVID hit, of course, after a period of time. And I'd already started the podcast. But I, you know, I started thinking when logistically, when you're looking at um, the amount of effort that's going into staging a production and you have the people at that time, it's like, yeah. It's almost though that the podcast is a sold out show every time because you're reaching so many more people all over the world. So that's a little bit why I call myself a therapist gone rogue, because I have a background in clinical psychology and therapy and worked in clinical mental health for a long 30 plus year career. Um, But I really feel like this kind of work, kind of meeting at the crossroads of social action and art and death has been more helpful than my one-on-one sessions ever were. Yeah. Mm. So that whisper from your brother. But it's interesting. I don't know if you know this, but um, Zenith Virago was also who pioneered the natural death care movement in Australia and initiated the Death Walker Training Program, Um, also used to be involved in the Vagina Monologues in Byron Bay. (laughs) I learned that later after we met and we became Facebook friends. And I said, it's the same time of the year. And I was doing another show after we were together, after I did my training with her. And it's like, oh, my gosh, she does this as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, activism fire, probably that we both have. Yeah. Yeah. And also going, you know, talking about taboo topics is, um, you know, that's where the the link is between those two, isn't there? Absolutely. So now we are both living in the land of tangihanga and Mm. um, we have all the uh, tikanga from Māori about death and dying that I think does flow out into the rest of society here. I mean, I certainly noticed the difference when I moved here from Australia. But you have many years' experience in nursing and counselling before you started the Death Dialogues Project. So what would you say, what do you think is one of the things in our Western culture, in our Western, rich, educated, industrialised, democratic culture, which is one thing that we most often neglect to prepare people for when it comes to death and dying, do you think? I think um, if we want to just take it to the very core, it's saying the D word. You know, it is actually acknowledging death in the room and death as a part of our lives. Um, it's it's mind blowing, actually. And I I did dignity therapy with people who had a prognosis of less than six months to live, which is usually the criteria for hospice as well. So many of them were in hospice and to hear them tell me stories and situations that were so frustrating with to them about how doctors were communicating with them about their end of life or not communicating with them. So when I was in those type of settings, um, actually my husband's a retired cardiologist now, and we used to call it the dog and pony shows. We did, you know, presentations about a variety of things. I was kind of the mind body person, but one thing that we like to talk about, and I really um, thought it was so important. And we had med students that came through was as clinicians, it doesn't matter what role you're in or human service worker or anybody working with people at all. We have to come to terms with our own mortality and consider our own deaths before we can meet people in a way that lets us have a fluent conversation with them about their own end of lives. And 
as a clinician that specialized in some work around anxiety, you know, I can tell you when you peel back the leaves of anxiety at the core is always the fear of death. And if you really think about that, you know, phobias are anxiety disorders. Um, you know, you think about that and the sense of panics, it's always, you know, I have a panic attack when I go on an airplane. Well, what is the underlying kernel there? It's fear of death. You know, the anxiety we might have around our children and their safety. What's the underlying kernel there? It's fear of death. And as long as we're keeping death in the closet and never talking about it, you know, the primary treatment for anxiety is exposure therapy. I can be exposed to this thing that gives me the greatest fear, and I can learn to feel safe and be safe and be more accepting. But if we keep death in the closet and pretend that it's never coming or stuff those feelings when it does come, that just allows that fear and that anxiety as a culture, as a society, as medical institutions just to grow. Mm. I know that so well. Having written a whole essay called Scared to Death <laughs> about my own death anxiety. And I want to come back to that in a minute, in a minute, when we talk a little bit more about grief too. But first I'd like to explore with you the difference between dying, death, and bereavement. This the three parts sort of to end of life for those of us left living at least. Mm. Um and interrogate where we are more or less literate. So if we're thinking of di the dying process, the death process or the bereavement process. Um, and I've, I've got a particular personal example. So when my first husband, Steve, was diagnosed with bowel cancer and uh, then he went through some treatment and, and then he was diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer and died some months later. I was completely ill-equipped to talk to him about what was going on and we didn't mention the D word at all until the very, very end of his life. And actually I didn't even really kind of get it until after he died um, and I was in shock when he died, believe it or not, even though he'd had 18 months of, of you know, since his diagnosis. I didn't know how to talk to him about the fact he was dying. So after he died, I attributed my own death illiteracy, a kind of, I guess this was a coping mechanism in some ways to the fact that I, I was brought up in this society in suburban Melbourne in the 70s, 70s and 80s where talking about death was taboo. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was like I felt like a product of that environment and I was kind of really angry about society in general at the time. And for years I described being raised in a, a death-phobic culture as a major impediment in my life and, you know, taught myself how to talk about death and dying and did all did the death walker training and so on. But I was just thinking more recently, I'm wondering, you know, since we're exposed to death so much or at least distant death in a way, you know, we see it on the news and movies um, in the last two years with COVID, we're hearing how many people die of COVID every day. So maybe are we so much death phobic or is it more grief phobic? I'm interested in what you think about that. Oh, I think they're tightly intertwined, actually, um, because I believe that when we shut down surrounding death and its eventuality for ourselves or for our loved ones, we tend to shut down our emotional terrain for the aftermath as well. And um, 
I mean, I could speak from personal experience. We're all human, right? And even though I, you know, really faced death and wanted wanted to look at it straight in the eyes, as a clinician, um, there were times that I skimmed over it, right? Because it's just, I know this is going to happen to me and, and be more profound later, as far as doing that work. And I would do that work with people, but it wasn't until experiencing my own deepest deaths, my brother, that I got the message loud and clear that, you know, it's, it's a, it's an indoctrination. It's a school in itself to have um, the people that we love the deepest and that our, our life supports, whether that is a child or a partner or, you know, like my soulmate sibling and then my mother, those were the two major, major deaths for me. It wasn't until then that I could actually understand the depths of it. And so I think that's a huge part of the issue and the problem is that until we are forced to go there it's almost a protective mechanism. I mean, if we think back what life would have been like in primitive times, right? You know, death avoidance was something that pushed us forward and helped us survive. So it's understandable that inside there's a kernel of not wanting to go there until we absolutely have to go there. So the, the thing that's frightening to me and that it's so very, very sad is the people who stuff their grief so much um, that I'm not even sure they're cognizant of their fear of it, but it's there and they stuff it so much and it comes out in so many wonky ways within their life and so many destructive ways. And so, no, I'm not great. I'm over that. I don't need to talk about it. I'm fine. But, you know, maybe they're too muching all over the place, you know, maybe too much drugs or alcohol or maybe too much um, work or, you know, too much anger. A lot of times these feelings come out in anger. Um, so I would suggest there is a correlation between the people that are not doing death and are not doing grief. And I will say, and as you would read in my book, and, and I have to say this if I'm ever talking, when people need to go see someone for grief, please, please, please be sure it's someone that has experienced deep grief. Um, I give an example of being in the States and sitting across from my old clinical supervisor who became a good friend of mine. And in the times between our visits, she had had several really deep losses. And she leaned over and whispered to me in the restaurant, what in the world were we doing before we had these experiences? Mm -hmm. I want to go back to every person I sat with in grief and say, I'm sorry. I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. I think that says it right there. Mm. a good consumer and do your homework because it's just like the, the male doctor telling the woman in full-blown transition of labor, how she's feeling. <laughs> that doesn't work. So it's good to, to be with somebody that knows the depth of that terrain. Mm. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you that question about counselors and, and making sure, and you write in the book about, you know, when, when you experience a deep grief, it's like joining a club. Yeah, and yeah, and, if you know, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah. So you also write about traumatic or traumatic grief. I've always said traumatic as an Australian, but I know the pronunciation is traumatic. The latest edition of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, a.k.a. the Psychiatry Bible, includes for the first time prolonged grief disorder. Now, I know in the Death Walker training, I remember Zenith Farago talking about um, suggesting that sadness is a natural response to death and that grief in, in some ways is a pathology. What's your take on all this? Is grief always bad? And when we do pathologize it, should we focus more on the nature of the experience or the length of time? <laughs> yeah, so you have just opened up a huge can right here. Um, if you had seen some of my posts after that came out in the news again about the prolonged grief disorder, um, I'm you know, it gets back to capitalism and the way that we have to do things. And in the States, the DSM was had to be my Bible and working in a hospital setting and working in a private practice setting. And um, But there's ways to work around that, that you don't have to give people labels that will stay with them the rest of their lives. It's one thing if it's a serious long-term brain issue, mental disorder, right? But I think that the problem that comes with that is people feeling less than and people feeling othered because of their grief. And I agree to differ. Um, the time that the pathology seems to come out with grief is when there are underlying issues that were there already. So as we talk about in the book, as I talk about in the book, um, it can spark a wildfire of anxiety, repetitive thinking, ruminating, regrets. And that can be a transition of your grief period. But for a person who has a predisposition towards anxiety, that is where the diagnosticians need to really be skilled and do their homework. Is this really grief or is this that grief has sparked what was already underlying? So major depressive disorder, um, anxiety disorders. I mean, there's lists under the mood disorders, yay long, and the anxiety disorders and whatever. It could, you know, for a schizophrenic person, it could maybe um, spark a schizophrenic break. Does that mean that the grief is the pathology? I would argue no. And I think that's part of the problem with society. And that's why we put things in the closet that are pathology, don't we? And especially mental health issues as well. And I think that's the huge problem with doing that is that we are not encouraging people to be open. And, you know, if we start flowing, you know, through life, and if we can just see that our loved ones, you know, never really die, their love never really dies. And it's, you know, we're in a space where there's many more people talking about this now. And um, the fluency is, increasing, but it needs to be, people need to have a license to grieve the way they need to grieve. And for some people that will be very quietly and personally, and for some people that will be acknowledging, and for some people it will be waves that grow their whole life. But I do not think they're, the prolonged label is uh, effective. I think most of us that had deep love um, we'll have waves of that forever. And then, of course, again, my experience as a clinician is when it's coming up in super clinical manifestations, there's more going on underneath that. 
that needs to be explored with a person's brain, neurology, mental health. Mm. Yeah, naming has such power, doesn't it? I want to ask you more now about anticipatory grief. And I mentioned it at the beginning of the show in my introduction and in the review that I published on Goodreads about your book. So when I read about anticipatory grief, it was a new new term for me. And it helped me reframe my own thinking about what I'd understood to be just simply death anxiety or anxiety around death. So I want to start by asking you with your counselling hat on, um, if they are fundamental, how are they fundamentally different or are they the same thing or is it perhaps somewhere in between? I think it is somewhere in between because, um, you know, as I said in the book, you can, it, it can come from the 20-year-old looking in their 50-year-old parents' eyes who's perfectly healthy. There can always, you know, those little elements, those little glimmers of anticipatory grief go throughout our whole lives. I mean, even as being that, usually it's around 10 developmentally that that children are starting to get the concreteness of death. And even if it's grieving your own future death, that whole, okay, you know, this element is in there. Um, When I look at it in other situations, when we look at um, dementias, Alzheimer's, when I look at my brother who for a year, Um, I mean, we didn't know if he had a dementia process going, he was in the moment, at the moment, but, but he could not retain anything, right? So we had lost a huge part of him that entire year. This was the man that was there for everyone. He was every, you know, I mean, I, I kid you not, he just really was the go-to person. And so that form of him had left the building. And so that grief process, and, you know, clearly it was um, intermingled with hope that those things would change. And, but I, but I think I just want to comment real quick, as I talk about his experience, it also talk, uh, illustrates our uniqueness when it comes to those talks about death, those early talks, like with him, we couldn't do it because we, he wouldn't remember from one moment to the next. Right. So when we're talking about when we finally got the cancer diagnosis and we tried to baby step there every time was like the first time he heard it. Mm -hmm. And so this was the guy who you could be 100% emotionally literate with. He taught me that men can talk and on a deep feeling level, he would have wanted that, but it, it traumatized him. Right. And so when I talk about the, traumatic grief in the book, it's, it's really less about the length of time. It's more about how, um, depending on what the death situation was and how it affected our hearts personally, everybody's different and our brains, there can be almost a post-traumatic stress response to that, you know? So for instance, you know, seeing him decline and, you know, his, his strong and strength and his mana and you know to see that morph into something different and then at the end to see him physically incapacitated actually he was physically incapacitated in the middle because they had to take him off all meds before a brain biopsy you know those kind of recurring images right um that happened that first year you know that's a bit of a traumatic response think about the people who are in an accident with some balloon think about you know all sorts of 
scenarios. And I think that's the one thing that I like to stress is that grief is a fingerprint kind of identity for everyone. And I think that's the problem. And, you know, I, I don't know what your language thing is on here. So, but I called bull on grief in, in a piece I wrote, because I think, unfortunately, grief is a word we're using for myriad emotional responses. And grief has become that word that many people run from, like they run. So that's where what our work is so important. I want to hear your story. I want to hear how your, your experience was. I want to know the differences. And by sitting with other people's stories, I become more comfortable with death, dying, and bereavement. Absolutely. And it is a pendulum, isn't it? It's um, of all those emotions, all the way from one end to oh, another. Yeah. And they can just surprise you. You know, you can just be swimming along and thinking, all righty then, all right, all done, moving on, you know, and then something out of the blue. And it could be as simple as a seasonal change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where, you know, or that's, a smell. <laughs> or a smell. And that's, that's a little bit of, you know, what we look at when we're dealing with people with traumatic stress issues, right? Is those similarities um, to that. And so, yeah, to widen those conversations into realizing, yeah, grief's not just, oh, I'm sad because my person died. Yeah. And that's why, as you say, the work, the death literacy movement, the death positive movement, death dialogues project, uh, death walkers are all, it's so, so important to start those conversations when we're still healthy and well and can communicate about it in all its complexity. So I just want to ask, and, you know, story is really at the heart of your book. There's lots of stories that you share from people you've had on your show. You have a chapter towards the end, which is called Love Never Dies, Do Not Ignore the Signs. So what do you personally think happens? What's your been what's your experience been? I know it's a it's a quite a long story which people can read about in the book, but if you could just sum up for us, what do you think happens when someone dies after they die? Your well, personal beliefs. My personal belief is that I bow at the feet of the great mystery, that I don't have to know. And but I know it's love. And I'm uh, my first exploration in my younger days that opened me up was hearing about near-death experiences. And then um, someone turned me on to the book, Hello from Heaven, where Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had gotten to um, re- a husband and wife research team to ask, put a call out for people who felt like they had had communication with somebody after they died. So ADC, after death communication. And I think if you decide to dive into these topics and it's just, you know, for, go back to your basic research courses, you know, what, what is one of the things we do for validity and it's repetition, 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 repetition. I've spoken with I've talked to, and I'm telling you, I'm I'm talking about speaking with the farmer's wife. He's a heart patient, and she just happens to be along for the appointment. And she gives me this long story about how her deceased son came and was sitting on the couch comforting her crying sister, and she walked in. I mean, you know, these people, it's, it's, it's not all what we would consider woo-woo kind of people or whatever. Everyday people are having these experiences every day. But just like the death conversations, they're afraid to talk about it. 
Therefore, people will think they're crazy, right? And I hate to use that word, but I'm just using it as a broad, you know, because it is a derogatory term. Um, and they don't want that. They don't want a label. And they wonder about themselves a little bit. Like, did I really see that? So my view is that there's a continuum and I'm human. And sometimes I get away from that, you know, and feel very human. I think earth school, sometimes I wonder if the below that's referred to in religions and the above, if we are the below, this earth school is hard. It's hard. It's tragic. It's traumatic. Um, It's for some people, you know, you just feel like you're beating your head against the wall all the time. But everything we hear about the beyond is beautiful and it all makes sense and there's love and there's connection and everyone we hear giving um, that feels like, you know, Tyler Henry, I don't know if you're familiar with Tyler Henry, but his beautiful um, series that just, just went, he's just a young medium who even my husband, who was sort of a doubter. I mean, he watches those stories and he just like, he is so innocent and pure and on it. I mean, we, you can't doubt that there's connection to the beyond. So I think my philosophy is just opening, just opening at times that, you know, I'm missing them so much. And I walk up and down my driveway or I go for walks in the country and I speak to them out loud. And there's times that I feel that I'm getting the messages, just like the, hey, Beck, you know, we need to get death out of the closet. And it's, um, that was the one thing that came out of that book, Hello from Heaven, was stop just second guessing and thinking things are coincidences or happenstance. Just start having your eyes really wide opening and accepting the fact that that could be open and odd. And But I don't know. And I really don't need to know. I know enough from my people having gone before me and from the experience I've had, which are many. I keep a list of them. And I've actually stopped because it was just so many that I feel connection all the time. I really do. Mm, Lovely. Mm -hmm. I wanted with I mean, we've talked about a lot of the things that you cover in the book. And I just realized I should have asked this question at the beginning. But you mentioned in in your early comments about working with your young intern who said, you know, nobody reads anymore, everyone prefers to listen, but you've written a book now. So what was the impetus for writing the book? And then I want to ask you one aspect about how you've presented the book. Well, I think it was pretty much during, the pandemic was just starting when I started writing. I actually wrote two books. I have a memoir through the lens of death as well. This was going to be one book. Basically, a lot of people were encouraging me, you know, you don't talk enough about your own stories on the podcast and um, the curiosity of how can someone do work with death and be so mired in, in it. And as I began really exploring that, I was seeing how in a really dysfunctional family system, I was also mired in death and so I brought that out, which I, I don't have plans to publish right at the moment. But the other book was mission work for me. And I know that people still read books. And I wanted something that people could hold in their hands that was gentle and held them in a graceful place. And that could um, be, <laughs> yeah, there it is. There she is. And um that not only could support them at varying times, but that even could potentially be a gift 
for others when there are no words. And then as a clinician who, you know, I can tell you, we do not do a great job talking about grief and loss with our students um, in counseling and therapy and um, med school, nursing, all of that. And I actually see, because I do cover pre-death all the way through to um, you know, after death and grief and many, many, many shades of grief that we don't usually hear about in transformation. I do believe it can be a primer to help people sink into if you're going to work with people and even thinking of, you know, teachers and tutors, you know, anybody that's working with the human experience, I feel like it can be a primer for, you know, that whole experience. So that was kind of where I was. I just knew there was a need and I, you know, there are a lot of books out there. This one's quite different. Mm. Yes, it is. You begin every chapter with a poem. Tell me mm. about those poems. How did, how did they come about? Well, as you can tell from some of them, they were in the rawest of times. Mm. Um, and some of them were in the most magical of times. And um, it's actually when when I can step away from the work of these books, which has just been a very intense experience for the last two years, as you can imagine. And, and then now um, following up and I'm getting ready to go to the States for 12 weeks. But when I can get back to relaxing writing, I feel like um, just getting back to that whole flow of prose or poetry, I think is where my healing from this experience is going to be because this did bring me wide open again in many ways. Um, you know, it's just been a lot of work, but work of the heart. And um, I wanted this format to be one that opened up each each area that we talked about in a gentle way and was welcoming rather than just, you know, let's get, because it's hard stuff. And I wanted to think about the grief brain or the brain, the anticipatory grief brain or the fearing death brain. I wanted it to be something that held a person, a little bit of a katakia, you know, to, to say it's safe here. Well, that's what those poems are about. Yes. And I guess it's a tradition that goes back right to the beginning of humanity, isn't it? To a little to, prayer. Uh, express, yeah, yeah, to express our, our sorrow and our loss and our love. In and then, as you know, at the end of each chapter is a little benediction as well, another little katakia of um, three, usually three little thoughts of blessing of, you know, may you, may you, whatever the chapter's about, something relevant. Yeah. We could, I could speak with you, Cordero, with you for hours, Becky, but we are running out of time for the show. I only have a certain amount of time on the radio. So my final question is, um, and this one, my, hopefully you can think of something on the spot. In, uh, at the end of each interview that I do on Death Walker's Guide to Life, I ask people to nominate a song that they would like played at their funeral or wake because I'm putting together a playlist on Spotify called Farewell Songs. What would yours be? Well, I have awesome. a list that you can look at, but my number one at the end, of, I think I say it in the book. Oh, no, that's in my memoir. My number one song is um, Human by The Killers. And I want people to dance their socks off. Awesome. And I want at the very end of the celebration. Yeah. Or whatever we want to call it. I, you can call it a funeral. You can call it a morning. I don't care what you call it, but 
Um, that's my song. And even now when I play it and I dance to it, I just can imagine my, my children being there and it speaks to me. So yeah, go to Spotify, find the, find the song human and listen to it and you'll see what I mean. Well, I'll put, pop it up on my playlist, which is on the Death Walkers Guide to Life website too, so awesome. they can find it there. So very last question to wrap up just really quickly, if you can tell listeners where they can buy your book. Yes. So it's available all over worldwide, online, all the usual places. Um, New Zealand, you can get it online as well. You can get it at amazon.au. But what I really love is that we have Paper Plus at Fangare has taken the book on and they will send it anywhere in New Zealand. And I would love for people to do that. I would love for people to support local. So yeah, just look up Fangare Paper Plus and um, order through them, even if you're farther away. That'd be great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Becky, for joining me on Death Walker's Guide to Life today. Oh, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland, and I've just been chatting with Becky Ord Jennison. Now it's time for Death on Screen. Because we've talked so much about traumatic grief and grief as a pathology in today's show, I thought I would preview a TV show that's a little bit more lighthearted. It's a new comedy series, Kiwi comedy series called Good Grief. The series opens with two very different sisters, Ellie and Gwen, who inherit a funeral home and its eccentric employees from their koro or grandfather. While Ellie is determined to uphold her grandfather's legacy, Gwen can't wait to get to Bali to become a DJ. So the premise of the show is, can they figure out their lives while staring death in the face? Shot at a South Auckland community centre over 15 days in the winter of 2020, season one of Good Grief consists of six 15-minute episodes, which are extremely funny. In an article on the spin-off in October last year, writer Chris Schultz suggested it could be the next flight, flight of the Concords, and not because it's funny, but because Good Grief has also been picked up by IFC and Sundance Now, which are part of the huge American network AMC, which is the home of Emmy award-winning shows Breaking Bad and Mad Men. Ellie and Gwen are not only sisters in the show, but sisters in real life. 25-year-old Grace Palmer plays Gwen, and 31-year-old Eve Palmer plays Ellie. And as well as being the stars of the show, they are also its creators and co-wrote it with Christchurch screenwriter Nick Shadle. There are some scenes in the show that are difficult to watch. The opening scene for one, which may scare off some viewers, but there are many more that are laugh out loud funny. Here in Aotearoa, you can watch the show on TV NZ On Demand for free, which is awesome, although you do have to put up with quite a few advertisements, which is a bit annoying in a show that's only 15 minutes long. I did find, though, when I was binge-watching it, the the ads became fewer and far between as I got into the series, which is good to know. If you're listening in Australia, you can watch Good Grief on SBS On Demand, and in the United States, just check out Sundance now. And just as an afterthought, did you know that good grief is a euphemism for good God for those who don't want to blaspheme? Of course, the whole field of death and dying is full of euphemisms. And that's something that we're trying to change a little in Death Walker's Guide to Life. Thanks so much for listening. You can watch the trailer for Good Grief on my website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. 
We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, ka mihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa. See you next time. Fly away. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the Top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.